to 405. And incidentally, this is just to take it from Sean Patton. Um, because the Latin was declared the language of the scriptures, and the Catholic Church um, made Latin kind of like the low German people have made high German, the language that is the religious language, and it was like that. Um, basically, the Greek um, manuscripts, a lot of them would have been kind of shelved in terms of usage. They were kept, of course, but in terms of being used, they would have fallen out of use in everyday sort of um, practice. And the Latin Vulgate, I believe, that was became known as was the used by the church. And that didn't change for a thousand years and, until the 1500 and something. So that's just an interesting note. And then the Bible through, uh, it started with John Wycliffe who uh, translated the Bible into English and later uh, of course he was I believe martyred and William Tyndale, Martin Luther all had their translations, of course Martin Luther's was in German and uh, and Tyndale was in English from Greek to English and then there was a series of Bible um, translations into English the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible which were all used in uh, they were consulted by the King James translators and the King James of course in 1611 and uh, since then, um, yeah, many of the so-called English translations have been, yeah, since 1901 was the uh, American Standard Bible, and they have been uh, seeking to improve or correct the King James, which I I don't think has uh, needs to happen. And the King James Bible has been authenticated by revivals and um, used of God since English became the, or the English Empire was a great, uh, used by God to preach the gospel around the world. And I believe that's why God did that with the King James Bible. And uh, there's yeah, much I don't know about the subject, but it is a very yeah, big topic. <clears throat> anyway, going forward, I was going to... I thought it was... There was a few crucial issues. And one would be um, the accuracy of which the Old Testament was transmitted, and then un understanding inspiration, and then um, 
then, un- then believing that, by, that God has preserved his word. I think those are very crucial uh, subjects. And which is not, um, is not a subject that is held even amongst the most faithful in evangelical Christianity. That um, seems to me, all that, that I've read, all that I've heard, um, and you, we'll see why that is the case. As I've, uh, yeah, I've gone, you know, meandering through the years. I started off with the NIV just because I was glad to be reading the Bible. Um, Didn't know anything about anything. And then I got a King James Bible, and then through the influence of uh, my favorite preacher, I... I uh, obtained a New American Standard Bible, which I read for, I don't know, maybe at least 10 years. And then under duress, and I say that under duress, I uh, switched to the King James in about the year 2000. And I was preaching in a, um, a largely black Caribbean church, uh, being the, the dominant culture there. And... After the message, I, this guy came up to me. He says, great message, wrong Bible. I was like, what? And I, out of frustration, I said, I'll just switch to the King James because I don't want to get any guff anymore from this guy. So that's what I did. <laughs> I didn't understand why. I just, uh, that's where I was at the time. And, uh, of course, I was a Greek student, and Greek students know everything. And... So there I was in the year 2000. But then I slowly began to understand the subject for what it is and uh, have become largely ignorant compared to what I used to know. But nonetheless, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's funny when you get older, you know less even though you know more. It's just kind of the way it is. You realize, hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty dogmatic back here, and I didn't really know what I was talking about, so the more you know, the more you don't know. I think Solomon said that. So another great discovery in uh, the history of the Bible was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, They were, the story goes, I don't know how someone else could search it out, but a shepherd boy was in some wilderness in the south near Dead Sea, Throw a stone into a cave, as boys would do, throw a stone into a cave. And he heard something like pottery breaking. He went to investigate and found uh, many, many scrolls that were stored in, like, clay pots. Well, think of it. They didn't have, uh, you know, a storage method. So they would have scrolls and they would store them in a clay pot. And these pots were kept for a long time. And there was a settlement of Jewish called Jewish people called the Essenes, and they had uh, obviously amongst them were scribes, and they would have had several copies of. Uh, I believe out of those set of documents, the whole Bible was attested to, except for Esther. 
and they have several copies of Deuteronomy, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, etc., etc. So there was many, many scrolls that would have um, attested to, and it put the date of the Old Testament back a thousand years, from 900 roughly to 100 B.C. And the Jews were very impressive in how they handled the scriptures. Because I believe they were given, they were custodians of the, the law and the prophets, and they took that seriously, as we shall see. <clears throat> but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that it demonstrated the accuracy of the Old Testament that we have today. Whereas formerly people thought the oldest Old Testament was 1,080 years old. Yeah, 900, yeah. And now they had something that was 1,000 years older than that and they lined up. And so it was a proof of the accuracy of the copy and the accuracy of, like Isaiah and all of the prophets that have been questioned. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to that in detail. But um, and I think I'm going to go even go around my own notes because I realized that the I was going to get into the rules of textual criticism, but that will be better um, looked at after we talk about the, the subject that Martin mentioned there, which is the how the Jewish scribes uh, copied the Old Testament. And just another note on the history of the the Bible. In uh, 1516, now approximately 100 years, uh, give or take a few years, a monk... I believe, named Erasmus, started to uh, put together a Greek um, manuscript. So he's got all the Bible in Greek, and he um, developed that New Testament, Greek New Testament, in around 1516. And that was perfected over a period of 65, or till about 1565, and uh, of which the King James Bible used that Greek text for its New Testament uh, translation. And, uh, yeah, we'll get into modern uh, textual criticism and everything and why I think it's uh, seriously flawed, of which I don't think there is, would be much debate on the subject. Anyway, this is... uh, yeah, what's just most people would believe, I would say, without being unfair to anyone. <clears throat> so, Jewish scribes. In uh, I was just in the reading of the New Testament, the scribes and Pharisees were uh, very common in the in the New Testament. The Lord bumped heads with the scribes. The scribes were 
um, the men that supposedly had the, and they did have the, not just the writing of the law and the, the prophets, I, the copying of uh, those things, and they, but they were lawyers, they were legal people, and they were men that had started that tradition with Ezra. It says he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. And it's hard for us to get into that headspace when things can be printed on a printer. You can download an electronic document and print out, you know, if you had a really good printer, you could print hundreds and hundreds of pages in a very short period of time. And imagine if you had to copy by hand without making any mistakes a document that was hundreds and hundreds of pages long and I I don't know what that would be like but that's the situation in which uh, it was so copies of books uh, were not just floating around it wasn't like hey I'll have one and uh, I think I read just recently that there are a group of Jews that still copy out the Bible, the Torah, um, by hand, and it takes about, for a really good scribe, about eight or nine months just to copy the first five books of Moses because they have all kinds of rules in which you have to do it, and it's very, extremely laborious and time-consuming. So imagine... Uh, applying that to the entire Bible, when if it takes this long to do, it, it could take years to produce a copy of, the, of one copy of the scriptures. And so if you didn't have many capable men, it would just imagine how rare the um, copies of the Bible were. And we're going to see that. So just some rules that they had developed I don't know when they developed, but they were certainly developed uh, after the time of Ezra. Now, there were always scribes. You can read that term throughout the scriptures. There were men that... uh, Baruch was a scribe. He was Jeremiah's scribe. He would, at the mouth of Jeremiah, he would write it down. These were men that were trained in handwriting, and they had certain rules and everything to copy it properly. So they would only use a clean animal skin. That's the, They wouldn't use pig skin or something like that. They would use a clean animal skin, an animal that was cleaned, um, either a bovine cow or deer or something like that. If they were making a scroll on which it was copied on animal skins, that's what they would use. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. Now, I believe they must have scratched that into the um, animal skin because they they weren't just writing without any kind of lines. So they must have had these lines that were scratched in. The ink had to be black. They must uh, or had to verbalize each word aloud while writing. So they would be speaking, and then they would be writing at the same time. So whatever that word was. So you would be less likely to make a mistake. 
And they had to wipe the pen and wash their entire body before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. So imagine if you're a passage in which the name of God was, I mean, just think, I've never even tried to count or even noted, but it could be many, many times. It would be a laborious, how, how many verses did you do today? Oh, got three done or something. I mean, just, I wouldn't know, but uh, it was a very laborious process. <clears throat> There was a review done within 30 days. If more than three pages required corrections, the whole manuscript had to be redone. So, yeah, they were... And these were men that were trained. It wasn't like they were apprentices. You know, these men were already trained. And, yeah, if, if you made a mistake and it was found, then... I don't think they burned it, but they, would have, they wouldn't allow it to go into circulation. They just, they just wouldn't burn a copy. No, and there was no, as uh, we said in, in grade school, hey, pass the liquid, and the liquid was liquid paper, because you'd be making mistakes, and you'd always yeah, be needing the liquid paper. Yeah, they didn't have whiteout. They could, I believe, make a correction, but if it was unacceptable, then, and if there had to be more than three corrections, they just started over. And you can imagine if you had worked on this for a long time, imagine your project in the shop, you've worked on it for months, and someone comes in, oh, one, two, three, out the door. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be like, so, but that's, I mean, this was, this was not just anything. This was the word of God, and they were, had great reverence for it. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to the original document. Documents could only be stored in a sacred place. Uh, which we see in the scriptures, and no document containing God's word could be destroyed. And it was either stored in a synagogue or buried in a Jewish cemetery. And this is why we have no market, no original documents of the scriptures. We'll say that again. We have no original documents of the scriptures. Why? Because they've worn out, they've made copies. And the old copies have been buried or lost. And so we have no original documents. The the document that Moses would have penned is no longer. It may be buried somewhere on the face of the earth. I have no idea. But for all intents and purposes, it's not in circulation anymore. So that... uh, that's very, we've got to note that because all um, evangelical scholarship relies on that, that there's inspiration only in the original documents. It says it, well, I'll demonstrate that over and over again. So they, they don't believe that um, you can have an inspired text 
that's not an original document. And you'll see why that's... Even for a, a person like myself who's not you know, very logical, methodical, it's... Um, yeah, this is a red flag, uh, and we'll see why. <clears throat> so up till 1948, the oldest Old Testament manuscript dated back to 900. And it, as we talked about that already. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were... Uh, discovered, and it uh, all of the Old Testament was was represented in those documents, saving one. And then they discovered that there were few discrepancies. And if any, if there was a discrepancy, it was usually kind of like a spelling of a name or something like that. It wasn't like there was something wildly different. It was yeah. basically virtually the Old Testament was unchanged over that thousand-year period. And that is uh, what they discovered. And it was the Masorites that were a group of scribes that developed a system of checks to ensure the accuracy of the Old Testament. And to ensure that they had not added or left out a single letter... They counted and noted the middle letter of the Old Testament. So they must have collated it in a certain fashion for this to be right there because it wouldn't work otherwise. And they determined which was the middle letter of the entire Old Testament and also the middle letter on each page. So if a scribe was copying and somehow he left out or added even one letter, then it would, as they counted those letters, they would get to that letter. And if it wasn't this particular letter, Aleph or whatever that letter was, then that page, and then if they found three mistakes, then the whole copy was uh, taken out of circulation or wasn't put into circulation. So they had this rigid um, way of checking that their copy was perfect perfect like the one they had just copied because the, the one they just copied was going to be retired I'll call it retired and the new copy was going to be the one that was eventually going to be copied so they wanted to make sure it was completely accurate and then they, they would get any other documents they would find they would check it to make sure it was accurate and if it wasn't then they would take it out of circulation it was kind of like a bank that would take in uh, questionable currency and then if they see something that's, oh, this is a counterfeit, then they would take it out of circulation. So as a result, uh, the Old Testament is, um, yeah, very, very accurate. And I have no reason to believe that it isn't that which was communicated by God to Moses. That's, uh, and I... I take that by faith that that is the case. But then, when you get to around uh, the time of the New Testament, or around 700 AD, that those same Masoretes developed vowel points because the, the Hebrew was written without vowels, so as I understand it. And then they included these vowel points that would allow you to pronounce the word properly. So they were a very 
And these were men were not necessarily believers, but that isn't a problem with God. He preserved his word through the history of Israel, sometimes with all but pagan kings on the throne. And it doesn't seem to be a problem for God to, to do that, as we shall see. Um, then we get to the time of the New Testament, <clears throat> and it's a complete uh, change not only in the, because the Jews had had the stewardship of the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures, and now that was being passed on to a Jew-Gentile church that was, um, yeah, much people coming out of paganism would have no such reverence for a particular book like the Jews had and people being converted from being pagans to Christians. But there's a reason to believe that that tradition continued. And these are just my own thoughts, because I don't believe that God ceased to be God when he went from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, and he had um, different people taking custodianship of the scriptures. So these are thoughts from, uh, yeah, that I've read, and I just tried to distill it down to a number of salient points. Uh, Christianity did not develop such a copying tradition for several centuries, which... um, And largely that would have been, as the church would have been declining in spirituality in terms of its descending into the Catholic Church. But at the same time, it didn't seem to be a problem for God in the Old Testament to have men that were not um, necessarily believers tending to the scriptures. Uh, The nation often fell into unbelief, and it was as if was hanging by a thread um, because there wasn't hundreds of copies of the scriptures running around. And it would seem to me that uh, even the scriptures survived the destruction of the temple and everything uh, under the Babylonian invasion because Ezra had a copy of the scriptures. He read it uh, to the people after the exile They had the copy of Jeremiah, Daniel did, in exile. So some men would have taken that, um, guarded with their life, the the scriptures. And by God's providence, he preserved his word under the Old Testament. Now, I don't believe there's any reason for that to end. (laughs) That um, God's caring for the scriptures. Christianity was a religion that was heavily persecuted, first by the Jews, then by the Romans, and on and off for the first 300 years of the church, before the time of Constantine, where he stopped um, Roman persecution or government persecution of the church. He stopped that in um, around 305 AD, something like that. 
So a copy of any book or letter would only last, this is my thoughts, between one and 200 years. There's some copies back there of the Bible. How old are those Bibles, Saul? 1845? Okay. Yeah, so it's 170 years. Um, arguably, they're not used much. Um, this is my Bible I've had for 20 years. And if you remember, people just didn't have their own personal copy of the Bible, so it would have remained in the church uh, with stewards of it, and it wouldn't be like there'd be you know, a copy in every home. It just wasn't the case for obvious reasons because it had to be hand-copied. So there was some people's arguments that there wasn't any professional scribes running around now, because these were, but there were still Jewish Christians what would have had that mindset, that tradition of the, the scriptures. And the, but there were many Gentile believers at that time. So the, the letters that would have come from Paul and uh, from other uh, apostles would have had to be copied because you wouldn't, in every city, at least the church would want one copy uh, of the scriptures, I believe. And so if you wanted a copy, you had to write it out by hand. And yeah, that was a laborious process, but that was uh, nonetheless the case. So if he attended to the scriptures... Uh, under the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, that later fell to, um, I I wouldn't say just your average Christian, but um, let's look to the Scriptures because it's the best teacher. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Sixteen and verse twenty-two. <clears throat> I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So, Paul was an educated man. He was uh, a rabbi, and certainly he both read and wrote probably in more than one language. But even he had somebody take down this letter for him. He dictated it to some other man. And it isn't because he couldn't do it himself. This man probably was more skilled than Paul in writing. This is just my thoughts. You could say that's complete nonsense, but... I, I don't see any other reason Paul could not. Perhaps his eyesight was not good and whatever. But most of the writers, even Peter, had his own person that would have taken down, written down, like a scribe. They didn't call it that, but uh, I believe the New Testament term is amanuensis, somebody that took down the letter for him. Um, so here is a man that was capable in writing, And he was a Christian, and he was a faithful uh, Christian at that. 
So I believe the Lord had his faithful Christians that would have been able to be uh, faithful scribes of the New Testament and wouldn't, would have been given charge of, uh, if necessary, copying down letters and portions of letters. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 21. 1 Corinthians 16, 21. <clears throat> he kind of ends the letter there in verse 20. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. So at the end of all Paul's letters, he took up the pen himself from the person that was writing it down. So he doesn't state who this person is, but there was a person that was writing down, uh, taking whatever he said, he would write it down. And he says, he takes the pen and he writes the salutation, the last uh, few words And he does that in every letter. Turn to Galatians 6.11. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. Now whether that's he wrote the whole letter, but... The fact that he was writing it with his own hand was something that he usually didn't do. So he had someone that was taking down that uh, letter. And these men were capable men. They were not... Just think we've got different kinds of men in the congregation and there would have been some men that were skilled in writing. And it was a skill. Now it's not like you've got to be skilled in typing because nobody is skilled in writing anymore. They're... Because it's just not needed. Now you need to be on the computer. You need to be, you know, and that's the new thing. But there would have been men that uh, were skilled in writing. Turn to Colossians 4.18. Just so you know, this is... Pretty well in every uh, letter. It says, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. So he takes up the pen, and handwriting is very... Men, there are men that uh, specialize in recognizing different handwriting. If I write something and my wife writes something, you would know right away. And it cannot be faked. You can't sort of... I can't try and write like my wife. It just doesn't work. And it's, it's like a signature. Can be forged, but you can usually tell men that are skilled in that. So Paul, he takes up the pen. So the, the, the whole point is there were men that were ready. Scribes. They, were, they didn't call them that. But they were able in this whole department of communication and writing. And would have been able to uh, copy letters for to go out into circulation. So the whole notion that uh, 
the Jews were capable, and then the rest of the, in the New Testament, God was given to a bunch of bumbling idiots. I just don't see it as a, I just don't see it. I, I really don't. And this is why. This is my thoughts, but I believe that they're sound, uh, that there were men that were capable. It just, they didn't just fall off the face of the earth. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 17. First Thessalonians three, not three seventeen, can't be three seventeen. Second Thessalonians three seventeen. Yeah, yeah. Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which note this, which is the token in every epistle. So I write. So he has a. A token, he writes at, with, it's kind of like a signature, but he writes a sentence, and, or a few sentences. He writes a salutation with his own hand. So you know, hey, this is Paul's letter because we can tell his writing. And the whole point is that someone else was writing that letter down, and they would have been capable men. Um, and yeah, people say, well, Paul had some eye problem, whatever. Granted, but I don't think Paul was uh, an incapable in communication. But there were men that specialized in that, and they would have been able and ready to copy the scriptures. And turn to Peter, First Peter five twelve. So it's so a different different author. So it wasn't you know Paul had that. Uh, Token in every letter that he would pick up the pen and he would write the salutation himself. So Peter, 1 Peter 5, 12. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. So the letter was taken down by Silvanus and he adds his that this is the truth and stand in it. So I believe it was commonplace for uh, the writers of Scripture to have somebody copying it down, which was the case of Jeremiah and other writers. And, and other writers, it's, it seems that Moses was the scribe of the, the Pentateuch. So it isn't that every letter was written by a scribe, but... It was uh, Jeremiah spoke and Baruch copied, took it down. He wrote it down. So I believe that would have continued. And we have no reason to think that yeah, the Old Testament was, yeah, was accurate, but the New Testament, a bunch of bumbling idiots, and then it just everything just went south there. I, I just don't... Uh, I can't accept that myself, but um, that I believe, and that's why I believe uh, that that is the case. There were men that would have been able to take up that task. And so let's interject with, um, or we'll continue on 
since we have already established that original documents are not in circulation because when you write on an animal skin and it's 2,000 years old, it's just going to be, it'll be crumbling, especially when people are touching it and it's, and handling it and using it and unrolling it and flipping it. It just, it wears out. And that's uh, just the nature of uh, books and things that are handled. So, the whole um, idea, are copies inspired, can copies be inspired, I think is a very important question to answer. Because if, it, if copies cannot be inspired, then we don't have an inspired Bible. Because certainly when you're going from a copy, which is in the original language, to a translation into a different language, then you don't have an inspired Bible. And I don't believe that. And so we, we have to either say we don't have an inspired Bible. How many is happy with that? Or that there is some other answer to this whole question. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Now this is not the what you would hear in... Yeah, I, I say... Oh, I don't know why I put a percentage on it, but it's very, very, very high in evangelical Christianity. Amongst the most faithful people that would believe that the scripture is the word of God and everything. They just, yeah, I couldn't uh, emphasize that enough. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. <clears throat> and it shall be, this is God speaking, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, this is a future king, he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. So the Levites had a copy of the law. The Levites. So there was one copy. And the king would have, it isn't that he would write it himself. I believe that he would have a scribe that would write a copy which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him. So it's his personal copy, right? So he can read it himself. He doesn't have to go to the temple. He doesn't have to go here and ask if he can use it. So he can read it himself. And this is so that he can be so familiar with it and read it all the time. It shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So that he won't fall into pride is basically verse 20 and he won't fall into sin uh, through neglect. So that was... Um, so before the Bible is even finished you have people making copies of it. So is that copy inspired? The copy that David would have taken and had a copy wrote out. So according to modern Bible criticism, then originally that, because someone else was doing it, it wasn't Moses that was writing it down, therefore it's not inspired. That's the logic, I believe, of uh, modern Bible scholarship. Yeah. 
problem now that is reason together, so that's the one, right? Mm -hmm. So God's speaking to Moses, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And God is commanding that the king should make a copy for himself. And of that copy the Lord says, he shall read therein, he may learn to fear the Lord, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do that. Is there any other way to understand that, that God is considering the copy that the king writes to contain everything God had said to Moses? And therefore, yep. that is an inspired copy. copy. Yep. Well, is there any other way to take that? I don't believe so. God is saying the copy will be inspired. Yeah, because yeah. he's saying all these words. And yeah. you know what Christ says. One job, one two. Yeah. Not failing. So, God is speaking to Moses that the copy of the king will have all the words that God gave to Moses. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty straightforward then, that the word of God is saying that the copy of the king will have all of the word of God. Yep, and it, and it will be, it'll have the same authority, everything of the original copy. So what they're teaching in your Bible College Seminary is about the word of God is wrong. Is, yes, although they wouldn't... It doesn't align with what the word of God is. No, but they don't have any less reverence, and this is the funny thing. They would uphold the inspiration, the everything of Scripture, but we don't have any uh, original documents, and therefore we don't have any inspired um, documents of the Bible. That's not true. Uh, anyway, that's what is taught. Turn to Joshua 8.32. So we're going forward. And, yeah. I don't know how many years, certainly decades. Uh, Joshua 8.32. <clears throat> Speaking of Joshua, he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. Now, I don't know if that's just the Ten Commandments, but um, he, um, I believe it's more than that because it says afterwards he read all the words of the law and the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. <clears throat> and he read it and there is not a word of all that Moses commanded which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them but you get the picture that there wasn't a lot of copies running around so that everyone had to gather to listen to the word of God and that was true for many many centuries that there just wasn't many copies, so you had to be a very privileged individual to have a copy of the Bible, uh, either very rich or, and that didn't develop even for many centuries after that. The Ethiopian eunuch had a copy of the scriptures, which he carried with him. 
and he was reading, at least he had the scroll of Isaiah when Philip met him. A very privileged man. But um, that was, that. so we have Joshua copying out from the law of Moses. And I'm, I'm just trying to think of what people would say. Well, these were the inspired writers, but they were still writing copies. And I know that the, the party line is, is that when you had men that weren't inspired, like the author of the book, then that kind of fell to the ground. And so if Jeremiah wasn't dictating to Baruch, then that was it. Whoever copied out the book of Jeremiah after that, was, it was not an inspired book. Um, how, 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 do you just make that up? Or? Well, that, uh, they don't. They just make they make that statement because they say, well, there's errors, therefore the errors are to be blamed on the these later people, and because you have to explain the error somehow, and that's how they explain it. And we'll see why that's the case. Uh, I don't believe it's. Um, yeah, we'll we'll get into why I don't think that's true. Jeremiah thirty six, thirty two. It's uh, helpful to yeah, understand what the scriptures comment on the scriptures. Jeremiah thirty six thirty two thirty six thirty two. So the, in verse 21, Jeremiah writes the uh, judgment upon the nation of Israel, and then he gives it to the king, gets a copy, and it's read before the king. And in verse 22, it says, Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him, and it came to pass that when uh, Jehadiah had read three or four leaves. He cut it, I believe that may be pages. He cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So he had a roll and he would read it and then he would cut it. The king would cut the scroll and then he would throw that into the fire and destroy it. Something that the Jews didn't do. They would never burn it. But this man was, even though he was the king of Judah, he was irreverent and he was uh, unbelieving. And he destroyed the role. Look down to verse 32. Then took Jeremiah another role and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words. So the first scroll didn't have the words of the second scroll, but they were still inspired. Um, So you had a copy Remade, and then they say, oh, it's the same author, so there's no problem. But uh, nonetheless, um, you have a new copy or a new original happening there. Turn over to Proverbs 25, 1. 
Proverbs 25.1. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So Hezekiah had his scribes, uh, which all the kings would have uh, had, and they had copies, or they had maybe perhaps it was even original documents that Solomon had wrote out different proverbs. So these men copied those out, and now that's in your Bible. So they had collated or gathered a bunch of these and they copied them out and I don't think anybody all of a sudden think oh that's a copy I wonder if it's inspired I don't think anybody's even thinking like that but there it is right there uh, before us that these men took original documents of which we no longer have and they copied them out because Solomon wasn't alive anymore And now it's in the Bible. So I don't believe the reasoning that copies can't be inspired is sound. I just don't believe it's sound, as we can see. It seems that God was back there and uh, said that the king was to make a copy. And God didn't seem to think that this copy is going to be uninspired. Because it was, obviously. And likewise here. And how many of documents, and when Ezra came, and he's traditionally, he was the chronicler, those that he gathered and uh, would have written the first and second chronicles, and kings, of which there is no recorded author. Um, They would have gathered documents and everything and wrote down what we have now as the accepted scriptures. Um, so I just don't believe the whole um, theory that copies are not inspired is sound. Turn to Second Kings, Second Kings twenty-two. Second Kings twenty-two. I tried to think through. Uh, The history of these things as I was reading it, 2 Kings 22, time frames and whatnot, 2 Kings 22 in verse 8. It says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found, notice, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now when you read that statement, what comes to your mind? It was, yeah, it wasn't available. He, he would never say, if this was something they had all the time, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And why is that the case? <clears throat> if you look back to chapter 21, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hesiba, just throwing marbles in my mouth to say some of these Hebrew names. So you had a faithful king before, Hezekiah. 
Then you had an unfaithful son for 55 years. I think the longest um, sitting prime minister in Canada has been 17 years. And that would seem like a long time. (laughs) Imagine a man on the throne for 55 years. And the decades that would go by. That's my entire lifetime. So since I was born, there's been one guy on the throne. And he's evil. Like, imagine living in Israel in that time. When Hezekiah has been forgotten, his grandfather and all that he did. And he has reared up all kinds of idols. And he's worshipping the sun. And he's sacrificing his children into the fire. And everyone's doing it. I imagine some priest, when Hezekiah died and sees this young lad then developing, who knows when he blossomed into the evil man that he was. At some point, some priest thought, I better hide this book of the law. That's what happened, I believe. Hid it in the temple where nobody would find it. And by the providence of God... Uh, This man comes to the throne, Josiah. Manasseh has since died. He repents before he dies, seeks to have some reform, but the whole nation in their hearts are idolaters. That's what I can only conclude because all Josiah's reforms to turn it around failed because he was a believer, but many people were not, and that's why it just reverted back after he died. But the whole point is that several times in this passage, I have found the book of the law over in uh, 23.2. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of of the Lord. This was an unbelievable time. For 70 years, there had been no word of God. And now they find the book of the law and they're reading it before everybody. And the whole point was that during the reign of that evil person, God preserved his word. Maybe it was down to one copy. All you need is one copy. You need one copy of the scriptures. And it was evident that that copy was lost. It wasn't lost in reality, but it wasn't there available for even the faithful people. Like here is Josiah growing up. How how he got like that, I don't know. But he was seeking God and he had no copy of the scriptures. So we have no excuse who have each our own personal copy and that is the history of Israel where sometimes it was down perhaps even to one copy of the scriptures and God wasn't somehow thwarted in all of that and then the Babylonians came imagine the time of Jeremiah and the temple is destroyed burned with fire it says but faithful men would have taken that scriptures that they had, even copy of Jeremiah's letter and many other 
copies, whatever was written down, they would have taken it with them and by God's providence would have preserved it. Because here you, you find Daniel, another 50, 60 years later, who has reading in the book of Jeremiah, studying to understand that the desolation of Jerusalem would be for 70 years. So God worked sometimes through perilous times to preserve his word. And if God is able to do that, then why would we think that that kind of ended with the Old Testament and he wasn't able to pull it off in the New? I just think it's absolute nonsense, period. I just can't accept that. Um, How much time do we have? When am I supposed to be done? Or when did I start? We started 10 minutes late, so... Okay. Unless there was a mutiny, we could probably go 10 minutes late. Okay. Is there going to be a mutiny? Um, uh, turn to 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. Again, most people in well-respected and I have no doubt they're believers. Yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16. Men that would not believe this. And I don't believe it's because they're unfaithful. They just perhaps haven't really thought about it. It's just it's kind of very strange. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture uh, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the whole fact that God inspired the scriptures is well laid out. Um, All scripture... So there it is in verse, the first word there, all scripture. And when he says scripture, he's referring to the body that we would know as the Old Testament. Because when Paul is writing, the New Testament is, there's just a few letters floating around. There would not have been all of the collated, what we would know as the New Testament then. So all scripture. But Paul believed and... um, Others did that what he was writing was also the scriptures. And he says that, uh, uh, Peter says that in his epistle. So, but I believe when he says all scripture, he would have been referring to his own, but almost properly the Old Testament. That the man of God may be perfect, furnished unto all uh, good works. So all scripture is inspired Uh, Inspired of God, Peter attributes to Paul's letters the same uh, that he would attribute to any other Old Testament writer. So it was God-breathed, that is, uh, inspired of God, given by inspiration of God. So it wasn't the person's ideas, it wasn't their own studies, that uh, even though they would have, some of them would have been learned men, And others would have been just average Joes, uh, fishermen. They weren't uh, 
I think it's the uh, people that commented on James and John that they were not learned men. They weren't, you know, they weren't rabbis, they weren't schooled in uh, all the top schools. And then the, uh, the scripture is valuable or profitable for doctrine, that's for teaching, for reproof, that's correcting, correcting in righteousness and instruction, instruction for uh, daily living. All to the goal that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You don't need something else other than the scriptures to perfect your life. There's many other helpful things, but uh, that is, uh, you don't have to go searching to other, other places. <clears throat> so it's helpful to, um, we'll just do a couple samplings of the fact of inspiration in the scripture, Isaiah 10.10. 10. The fact that the scriptures say they are inspired is well attested. We could probably spend quite a long time just on that, but we won't. Let's just get the idea. Isaiah 10.10. 10. <clears throat> well, that's probably not it. No, I... Uh... Miscopied that one, Isaiah uh, 38. Now, go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book, that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. So God says over and over again to his prophets, not to all of them, but to those chosen to write it down. Jeremiah 30 and verse 2. Jeremiah 30. Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. So the fact that the Bible says it's inspired is well attested. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.37 says that, Let the spiritual man acknowledge, I'm I'm just summarizing it, that the that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. He's not just giving you his suggestions, but these are the commandments of the Lord. And then we could go to several scriptures where the Lord says to the prophet, write. He says to John the Apostle, he says, write. So that's how we have a, and God wanted it written down. And it was uh, well uh, established. Second Peter one twenty. Second Peter one twenty. 
<clears throat> Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's speaking of the inspiration of the Old Testament there. And as we see, he would have put Paul and himself in that category. Um, but speaking of the, the Old Testament. So it's not a private interpretation. Didn't, someone didn't research and gain all this stuff and human thought, creativity, etc. But it's God moving them and they're carried along uh, by the Holy Ghost. But didn't at the same time destroy their own personality and their, they weren't just automatic writing as um, just, but they had their own mind, they had their own uh, control of their own spirit and everything else, but they were carried along. Uh, it says moved by the Holy Ghost so that the, the words that were written down were, could be say are the words of God and that's what we believe about uh, inspiration <clears throat> and then um, we'll get into commentary on that whole thing and this is what um, Merrill Unger believes about inspiration. I think this is very important because his words, I believe, are representative of most of evangelical Christianity as we know it today. And you can search it out yourself, but my, my favorite preacher, this, this would be his view. Um, <clears throat> and I say favorite preacher as that's... I, I listen to... Uh, John MacArthur for many, many, many years. And this would be his view, I believe. And I don't believe I'm misrepresenting him. You can check it out for yourself. <clears throat> According, if it can be demonstrated that we have the words they spoke, and that would be the original offers, and wrote, transmitted substantially, notice his words, his wording, tra transmitted substantially in identical form with the original documents, the science of textual criticism allows this to be done. So, summarizing, original documents is going to come up several times, which we don't have. Um, but through the science of textual criticism, we can maybe get close to what the original meaning was or writing was. Where do you ever read in, in all of the history of the scriptures in textual criticism even coming into the whole discussion about having the word of God. It just, it just isn't a thing. You don't read about it anywhere. You don't think that, well, we get all these different documents together and then we, through the science of textual criticism, determine what the original reading was. I don't need, people didn't even believe that. But this is what we have today. <clears throat> and these are men that believed in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures. These are not people that think the Bible's a bunch of nonsense and they're trying to disprove it. 
By verbal inspiration, it is signified that in the original writings, the Holy Ghost led in the choice of each word. So what does this person believe? That the Holy Ghost in the original writings led to the choice of each word. But if it's a copy, then what? Then that wasn't operating. And he comments again on the results of inspiration. Absolute freedom from error must be attributed to the original copies of the inspired writings. But by extension, that cannot be given to a copy. And that's what he does believe. But having said that, he says, providential preservation of the scriptures. It is reasonable to conclude that the Holy Spirit preserved his word through the science and domain of lower New Testament criticism. When I read that, I thought, really? I just don't see that anywhere in the Bible itself. And at this point, we'll talk about what he means by... um, the science of textual criticism because I don't believe it's a science and if it was then maybe but it isn't it's not a science where is my notes on that so Basically, what he means by that is we have a bunch of documents out there that are uh, portions of Scripture. There may be different books and different, uh, all kinds of different lines of um, manuscripts, as they're called. And we know that somewhere in all of that is the, the truth or the Bible. And we're going to take all that and we're going to apply some rules to it by which we can determine the original writing, hopefully. And, um, but they, they always assure you that this is not affecting much of the Bible. Uh, but having said that, all the, the only thing we can say is inspired is the original copies, which we don't have anymore. So to me, this whole thing's broken down before we even get out of the driveway. But nonetheless, the majority of texts in Scripture are not in question. That is true. When I I had two Greek New Testaments, and one has no what's called a textual apparatus. And in modern Greek texts, which is the West Cotton Hort version, which was developed in 1881, so a long time ago, they have what's called a textual apparatus, where they have lettering system that says A, B, C, and D. A, we're sure this is the re- original reading. B, we're pretty sure, but we have some doubts. C, well, it's not the original reading, but this is our choices of which one it was. And D, we for sure know this isn't the original. So with that kind of confidence, we approach the Bible. And this is in 
the bottom of the Greek text with all these variant readings, and they try and determine which is the original reading. Now, it doesn't affect that much, really, at the end of the day. There are different places that, yeah, there's some omissions and additions that really matter. But um, what it, all it does, really, is confuse people and diminish their confidence in what they have before them is the Word of God. It doesn't really change much. And they try to really say that 98% of, of passages are not in question, <clears throat> but the ones that are don't really affect any major doctrines. And that's what most men would believe. But that wasn't good enough for me. I just, I wasn't, because at the end of the day, there was, there would be always this doubt and question cast on the Bible. And so you would find people saying, well, the King James says this, but uh, the authorized didn't translate it properly, but the real translation should be this. And that's what you hear all over Greek students and men that are very learned saying. And what they're really Without saying it, without even themselves thinking, what they're doing is casting some doubt in people's minds as to what they have before them is the word of God and it needs correction. And that, I don't believe, is helpful. Um, People don't need to think, well, you see, the Greek word here is really X and that the the English word here is not really what, you, you know, and it's, and what you have is a bunch of confusion and lowering people's confidence in what they have before them is the word of God, and they should just receive it. And that's what I found in my life. That was the net effect. Now, I was going to straighten that out as a Greek student, and I was going to be the guy. All these uncapable, bumbling people before me weren't able to do it, but I'm the guy with you know, two years of uh, New Testament Greek from somebody else that believes that they are really good at it. I just think, are you kidding me? This is like, there, the whole pride of it all, that everyone before me was incapable and I'm going to straighten it out, is just ridiculous. But that's where most people are at, nonetheless. Um, even men that are very learned often will say in their messages, the authorized or the this or the that, and then they seek to give what is the proper understanding or translation of the scriptures. And what they're, they're inadvertently doing is undermining people's confidence in what is before them. Or saying what I'm saying is really um, of value or is correcting the text and not really thinking that they're undermining people's confidence in the scriptures. And the irony of it all is that they don't, in doing that, they have no less an opinion of the word of God than they started with. Like they believe that it's inspired and plenary and everything. They just, it isn't diminished. But the net effect is that it casts doubt in people's minds. And I don't believe that was ever a situation that was in the scriptures. Martin was probably going to bring that out. You don't see people questioning and this and that. What, what does the uh, Codex Vaticanus say? Oh, oh well, Oh, no, but the Alexandrian text doesn't say, you know, just there isn't this kind of thing. Um, They just received it as the word of God, and they believed it, and 
There wasn't this doubt that was cast on people's minds. Secondly, they believed the Latin Vulgate weighs heavily in determining the original reading. Now, when was the Latin Vulgate translated? Storm? That's when it was finished. Bing! You get first points for that. So in 405, so they believed that because it's an early translation of the Bible, it's very reliable. So there couldn't be any, there'd be much less possibility of there being errors in it. So they would weigh whatever that reading was, was weighed heavily in the decision of giving it an A, B, or a C, or a D, the reading. Now, do you start to see a problem with that reasoning? If there's only inspiration in the original copy, one man in one copy could add all the errors. Just because Jerome was at in 405 doesn't mean that he somehow uh, was going to be more faithful than the guy that came in 505 or 605 or whatever. And then you had some other guy in 200 that was copying the New Testament, and he's just some nobody, if I could say that. And he's faithful, and God's working through this man to influence him to copy it correctly. And his copy just goes on, whatever, but he doesn't, it, it, he wasn't part of that whole Latin Vulgate. Or you had a, and then some other guy takes this up 200 years later and 500, and so his copy is actually the one that God is inspiring to be without error. And this other one, it's not like Jerome just met just all kinds of evil things in it, because I don't believe he did. But just because Jerome was closer to the date of the original copy doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be without any errors. It could be right at the beginning. There were men that were writing bogus New Testaments and changing things and everything. So that whole reasoning that has, the, the closer it is to the original in terms of time frame is it's going to be most reliable. I can see why they believe that. I just don't believe it's necessarily sound thinking. Um, more witnesses are to be for preferred than fewer. In other words, if you have a whole bunch of, of manuscripts saying this, then we're going to go with that over. Uh, if you had one manuscript saying this, then we're not going to believe that one because that's obviously false. Again, I don't believe it's sound uh, thinking. Uh, for since the the original autographs alone claim to be the wellspring, so that's their whole, yeah, their their whole everything is shaped around that. The amount of authority due to co- to codices drawn from primitive sources, Latin, Greek, depends on the nearness to the source. So they they would take something that's closer. If it's an older manuscript, they're going to weigh that heavily as opposed to one that's much. Um, but we see that that is also not good reasoning because the, the Old Testament, they, the oldest manuscript they had was 900, but the reading was just as reliable as the one that was in 100. So I don't believe time frame really has anything uh, to do with it. The shorter, they also apply all these rules. The shorter reading is to be preferred. <clears throat> so if there's two readings of a text, the shorter one is to be preferred. 
the more difficult reading is to prefer, be preferred, the harsher reading is to be preferred, and the more unusual reading is to be preferred, which all of which have problems, I believe, in logic. And then lastly, there's many other rules, but this is the biggest one, I believe. Uh, they assume no spirit can influence the writer, which uh, I don't believe is even sound in Scripture. Now, they would say, look, you got men that were under the Old Covenant. They weren't necessarily believers, but they were copying out the Bible. Um, so we're going to assume that there's neither nor good nor bad spirit influencing a man that he's copying out the scriptures. Now, is that, is that even something that the scripture says? Uh, yeah, and he was an evil man. He wasn't uh, recording the scripture per se, but um, every person is influenced by some spirit, whether it's a bad spirit or whether it's a good one or the good one. And that whole, but these are some of the rules. I'm certainly not mentioning all of them. So the whole notion that we're going to rely on textual criticism to bring about the what's closest to the original reading, I believe, is just going the wrong direction. And the whole notion that you can have an inspired translation is literally laughed at in, in scholarship in evangelical Christianity. If you say, I believe the new, that uh, this is the inspired word of God, people will they'll just... I'm not kidding you. That's just where... So I, I believe where it all goes wrong is that people don't believe Okay, it starts back there with when you have a copy, then it's uninspired. And I think it goes, it takes a wrong turn there, and then it just kind of, we, we just never end up at the right location because we've, we've already lost it. And certainly a translation from another language into any language is just, it's not possible for that to be inspired is where I believe it all falls to the ground. And ultimately it comes down to faith, believing that God, if he is able to inspire the scriptures, which we all agree, and then these men would all say amen, but as soon as you say that he's able to inspire a translate, inspire copies, well, I, I, don't, I don't think so. And then certainly inspire a translation, then that's where most people are at. And not because they, they lack reverence for the scripture or even, if I could say, express confidence that the Bible's the word of God, that isn't even come into question. I wouldn't question their men's integrity, anything like that. It just seems that almost there's a logical disconnect. I, I don't know how else to describe it than that. that. And you can search it out for yourself. Men that are very... Uh, gifted preaching and teaching and have a yeah they both preach the gospel of Christ and they see fruit in their ministry everything and they still when it comes down to it this is what they believe um, about inspiration about transmission and translation
and you cannot have an inspired translation. And that's why the King James probably is the Bible that takes the most beating when it comes to um, men in correcting it. Now they'll correct other versions, but that one takes the biggest beating. And I just don't believe it's sound thinking, and I trust that God was able to bring down to us the Word of God so much so that when any man stands in the pulpit and preaches the word of God faithfully, that you're getting the word of God. You're not getting something that's anything less than that. Uh, yeah, forgive me for yeah so much gaps in my thinking and everything else. But sure, yeah, I'm sure Martin will fill in the. I think a careful study of the Bible itself in addressing these things is most, was most helpful to me and not going through endless, um, what, what amounts to looking through all these different manuscripts and translations and trying to uh, sort it all out. But trusting that, we'll, that what God did under the Old Covenant, he's able to do under the New Covenant. Thanks, Sean. And I know there's a lot of technical stuff there, and we can get lost in that. So I don't want to be long, obviously, but summarize some things. Um, one, uh, and perhaps this is ironic or comforting, however you want to look at it, the conclusion of all of their scholarship with their criticisms and so on is actually that you can have tremendous confidence. This is their conclusion in the actual English translations that they produce. And they'll probably limit it to maybe six or a dozen. And that's what they'd say, is that the, the fundamental doctrines of Christianity as presented in all of the major English version translations are um, beyond question faithful to what was inspired. They will actually say that. And they are correct. So the irony is in, in all of the palaver when they on one hand will tell you, well, oh, you know, King James wrong here and there, and it creates all this smoke, is that their own the 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 most um, intellectual arm of the flesh, human, well meaning critical, applying unbelieving principles, that still comes to the conclusion that all of the Gospels presented in your New Testament is without question perfectly faithful to what the apostles wrote. That's their conclusion. And you have to wonder then why all the fuss, right? Um, so that, that nowhere is in dispute. Things they call errors and therefore uninspired, and this accounts for most of it, are things like spelling. One letter of a name is considered a deviation. Now, you've, you've studied these in more detail, so I'm deferring to you on that. But these, are, these would be considered changes and so on. And it has to do with a misguided notion of inspiration. And the passage in Jeremiah is very important to recognize that inspiration 
does not mean that it's going to be word for word the same the next time around. And Jeremiah added many words. He was inspired both times. In Deuteronomy, you can see the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy. And it changes numerous words and they're both inspired in the original. So the scriptures themselves... And this would help so many of us if only we'd read the Bible. The scriptures themselves do not require word-for-word imitation to be inspired. And even the Lord Jesus would paraphrase when he quotes the scriptures as recorded in the Gospels. What we do want to recognize is that by faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God. And by faith the scriptures were were, um, brought down in the form that God wanted them to be brought down. You can see it in the, in the, historic, in the scriptural accounts, how precarious, Sean mentioned, you know, might have been down to one copy. Moses, the word of God embodied in human form is what Moses represented, was precariously put in the mouth, almost literally, of uh, alligators or crocodiles in the Nile River in a basket as a baby. God has been pleased to leave things precariously. You see that in the scriptures and you see it in history with um, Jeremiah's works being put in the fire, Tyndale's works being lost, or was it Wycliffe, and having to start all over, burned. Uh, so the worst of their scholarship or the, the, the worst application of it proves your New Testament to be sound. Their point that all of te- the science of textual criticism by their own unbelieving standards actually does vindicate your Bible. And then they get into nitpicking, well, on this passage and that passage. That's one point I want to make, is that their own science does vindicate your Bible. Two, most of your revivals in the English-speaking world in the past 400 years overwhelmingly were accomplished through the preaching of your King James Bible Because, and historians have recorded this, the common people believed it to be the very word of God. And it was that faith in the hearts of people that enabled the reality of the kingdom of God to be spread abroad. Not the unbelieving criticism of scholarship that we see today. Three, it is the um, subtlety of the serpent to whisper into the minds of men. Did God really say that? Yea, hath God said. And so it's not a path we want to go on. And four, and I started with this, is have faith in God. And recognize God is overall. A couple of passages from Proverbs. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.1. Proverbs 16.9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And people who think that inspiration can only be through one inspired prophet, and that cannot be through the collective works of men seeking to provide a translation in English for all God's people, have missed that basic truth is that though God can inspire the prophet Jeremiah, he can also work with a committee. Look at how he's going. The lot is cast into the lap. A man's heart devising his ways. The preparations of the heart in man. And yet he's saying all of this, the result is what God is working. And so people have a very limited and human 
understanding of inspiration. That has led to these problems. So that God can work in the hearts and minds of men who don't know they're inspired. Uh, such as Caiaphas, who was evil. Um, and the end result of, of our study here is one, to realize that at the worst, the worst possible view demonstrates that your Bible is completely reliable. How much more, if you look at it with a heart of faith, can you recognize that you have in your hands the very Word of God and can completely trust and be confident in it? That's the point, right? Uh, Sean didn't go into how many. There are over 5,000 manuscripts or fragments of your New Testament from all around that witness to the consistency and constancy of, of its record. You know. um, so, uh, just tying us together here, wanted to draw our minds to those passages. In that, in all of it, persecuted people writing um, the temple in Jerusalem, right? Matthew's gospel, probably written in, uh, in Hebrew for the locals or Aramaic. Um, Paul writing to the Hebrews. In Jerusalem, again, probably in the Hebrew tongue. And yet all we have are Greek um, copies of that because all of the Hebrew literature that the Christians had, they had to abandon when they fled. Jerusalem was burned up. The Lord wasn't interested in preserving that original manuscript. He was interested in preserving his word in, uh, throughout the ages. Um, we trust in the living God. Right. That's the thing, is to be uh, recognizing that when we're reading, we're reading the Word of God. And not having anything in our minds saying, hath God said. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Thus saith the Lord. That's the purpose of our study, is to um, not, uh, not lambaste. Brethren, I really appreciated how Sean brought out. These are men of faith, well-meaning. And they unintentionally undermine um, some people's confidence in the word by quibbling over this phrasing here. And they use words like corruptions and so on when these are highly exaggerated terms that often describe a spelling mistake. or Not even a spelling mistake, a spelling change. Not considering that that spelling change could have been inspired by God for those people there. Much in the same way that the very Greek... New Test, um, Old Testament that they had and that the apostles quoted was also, um, by virtue of spiritual men quoting it, inspired of God. Um, so let's not, uh, let's not let the well-meaning errors of evangelical scholars distract us from the fact that we have a, uh, an entirely reliable, inspired, set of scriptures which we can read in and meditate and know that God is speaking to us in what he has brought down to us through the centuries. That's been the, that's been the point. Um, already spoken twice as long as I intended to. I really just wanted to bring us to those, uh, that passage in chapter 16 of Proverbs. The whole disposing thereof has been of the Lord. And even the King James translators wrote themselves. Um, I'll read it next time. They, they set out 
to bring all of the English versions, and there was about five available at the time, into one, one English Bible for the people of God throughout the English-speaking world. And that's what they achieved. And for the ensuing centuries, the revivals of the English-speaking word were based on the preaching and believing of the word of God through that. Um, but this is not to get into fights with people who use the NIV or something. That's not what I'm about. Well, a little over time, but we start a bit late. It's morning service and afternoon. We'll go. We'll we'll get it right again next time. Brother Dave, do you want to close our service with prayer?